0: The book of James brings a nice balance to the other New Testament letters. The Apostle Paul emphasizes that we are saved by faith alone and not by works. James, on the other hand, reminds us that true faith will produce good works, for faith without works is dead. Now, let's join Pastor Ross with our verse-by-verse study through this very practical epistle. All right, James chapter four, people. We are making our way through the book of James, verse by verse, and we are taking our time, you will notice. Uh, today is going to be three verses to finish up from 13 to 17. So while you're making your way there, and ask the Lord for his help. Heavenly Father, thank you for the joy that we feel in our hearts to love one another and be loved, to walk with you, the lover of our souls, And Father, it's not just that we love one another, but that God first loved us and sent his Son to be an atoning sacrifice for our sins. So thank you, God, that we love because you first loved us. And now, Father, as we turn our hearts to consider your holy word from heaven, we recognize it does not have its origin in any man. It's not from this world or this earth, but from heaven. It's alive and living and can transform our hearts. And we pray that it does as we receive it this morning. In Christ's name, amen. Well, it's truly difficult to appreciate the impact of the sinking demise of the Titanic and what it had on the public psyche In 1912, it was truly an international tragedy. 1,522 people either drowned or froze to death as the 46,000-ton palatial liner took a nosedive to the bottom of the icy North Atlantic. That was not supposed to happen. In fact, the Titanic was the biggest grandest, most opulent vessel ever to set sail. Never since the Tower of Babel could man be so proud of what their hands had made, said some of the critics. Now, that fateful Wednesday, passengers began boarding. The passenger list included the most famous names in the world, the Guggenheims, the Astors, the Strausses. 100,000 people attended the epic launch. Boasts and claims and arrogance of its indestructibility were boundless. One writer of history put it this way. Man had finally conquered the forces of nature. Titanic's 146 watertight compartments, her state-of-the-art telegraph system, and her gargantuan size would prove this. Consequently, she did not really need lifeboats. Her crew could be strangers one to another. She could skip standard strategy and safety procedures. She could attempt to travel at excessive speeds through the North Atlantic ice fields to prove how truly great and wonderful she was. And she could ignore numerous warnings about the icebergs, all this with absolute confidence of Titanic's invincibility against the forces of nature. After all, even God himself could not sink this ship, they said. Well, it was, as I was reading the history, thank you, It was like a dare. It was like a dare, some writers said. Presumption can be very costly and in some cases lethal. And when our Christian lives, when it comes to presuming upon God or the sin of presumptuousness, James calls it a subtle pitfall and a grievous sin. Now, of all the 55 correctives, the little commands in James, there are 55 of them. And I mean, it's the book of how to repent of your sins, really, in five chapters. There's 55 commands. Of all of them, the text that we're going to look at this morning is, to me, the most disconcerting. The most. It made me the most uncomfortable. It got into my psyche and my heart and my soul in in a disturbing way. It really is sobering, though it will appear not to be. It will appear at first glance like, whatever, James, whatever you're talking about, it doesn't sound very serious. And that's the verse that really one slip up with this text, and you'll, you'll miss it. You can miss it completely. It's so subtle. And so we're going to talk about that. Let's pick up where we left off and James' holy tirade there. It's a good tirade. He needs to be. These Christians are crazy. They've compromised their Christian lives. They're living worldly lives and they're doing things with the wisdom of the world. And James is saying, in context here, humble yourself before God because God opposes the proud But he will give grace to the lowly, to those who know their place before the king of kings and lord of lords. And that place is low before him. Verse 13. Now listen, you who say today or tomorrow, we will go to this or that city, spend a year there, carry on business and make money. Why, you don't even know what will happen tomorrow. What is your life? You are a mist that appears for a little while and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if it's the Lord's will, we will live. We would do this or that. As it is, you boast and brag. All such boasting is evil. Anyone then who knows the good he ought to do and doesn't do it, sins. Sins. Well, let's park there and consider these three verses with sober reflection, with the help of the Holy Spirit. What we're dealing with here is the subtle sin, as I've mentioned, of proud presumption. It's really yet another manifestation, really, of a long list of ugly vices that James has been pointing out to these folks that it's born of a self-absorbed way of life. He's already told us in chapter 3 that where you have a me-first attitude, where it's all about me, myself, and I, he says, there you will find chaos and every evil practice born from being self-absorbed. And so, really, this... <laughs> this Writing God out of their plans in their daily lives is really just a natural consequence of being a self-absorbed person because really it makes quite a lot of sense to me that you can't serve two masters. And so the end result of letting self have the throne is to dispossess the rightful king of the universe. Whoa, whoa. Moving on. (laughs) And so we got to watch out for that for sure. And James is going to start to talk about that. He says, listen, when you're in charge, God is put in the back seat and all hell is going to break loose eventually. And so when, um, so looking at this verse now, first of all, uh, this morning, a beautiful three verse text, uh, the grievous sin of presumption. Let's talk about it the way James addresses it. Number one, what it is. Number two, why it's so dumb. And number three, how we Christians ought to live instead. So, number one, what is this sin of presumption, to be presumptuous? Well, it's kind of a big word. It has an obscure meaning, so let's start at the beginning. James finds it necessary to give you a picture of what he's talking about because a picture is worth a thousand words, even if we're talking about Greek. And so we're going to define exactly what we're talking about now. The word presumption doesn't appear in the text, but it's really certainly... Uh, what is going on here. Now, in English, let's talk about the verb, all right? To presume or to assume. Kind of synonymously used interchangeably with perhaps a shade of difference. So very simply, uh, in a harmless way, to presume is really to suppose something is going to go a certain way without checking it out. Well, you know, there's a harmless use of this. I presume the service is going to go well. I presume we're going to finish by noon. (laughs) Well, that was dumb. (laughs) I presume we're going to close up and we're going to go to lunch. I presume the car is going to start. I presume all of these things. I presume tomorrow the mail is going to come. I presume there'll be a bill in there somewhere. Nobody's going to say, how presumptuous of you. Right? Because it's a harmless kind of educated guess that things will go a certain way as they have gone in the past. I presume many people in the Midwest are out buying air conditioners today. Well, nobody's going to say anything wrong about that. Now, the harmful way to presume... In a negative way, this word means a prideful, arrogant perspective that is so self-assured it makes no contingency plans, no plans for something unforeseen, no need to consult or yield to anyone. I can drive perfectly well after I have a couple beers, somebody might say. Or they could say I can be sexually promiscuous and not get pregnant or not Acquire an STD that happens to other people. It will never happen to me. I saw a special about a bank robber, uh, Stephen Trantell. He's in jail now. Uh, former broker, and he had a wife and two kids, and lived in a, a beautiful suburb. And he lost his job and just started robbing banks. He was good at it. He robbed them for four months on Long Island. Some of you are nodding your heads. You know about this story. He, he robbed ten banks. And he got away with them one at a time. And here in the interview he said I just thought I was so creative and so smart. I presumed I could go on this indefinitely this way. I said to myself I'll never get caught. And the interview was from prison. <laughs> um, now Uh, I don't have to study. I don't need to lock the car. You know, these are times when you're acting in a presumptuous way now that we're getting closer to our biblical meaning of the text, the idea that's prohibited by James and, of course, the Holy Spirit. Now, let's talk about Bible's understanding of being presumptuous toward God. The Old Testament uses the word in Psalm 19, Lord, keep your servant from presumptuous sins. That's the King James Version. The word is Zaid in the Hebrew. It just means proud or willful. In other words, the psalmist is saying, God, stop me when I think I know better than you and everybody else. You know, it's that proud, arrogant, self-willed behavior Um, that originated with the devil and how the devil became the devil. The five I wills, perfectly willful, proud. I will ascend into heaven. I will exalt my throne above the stars of God. I will sit on the mount of congregation. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will be like the most high God. The original presumptuous sin that says God says no I say yes I go above and he passed that on to our legal representatives Adam our father and Eve our mother did God really say no (laughs) come on rise above him Rise above. Well, he said, you know, there's a law here. You don't even touch it. Don't go near it. Don't eat from it. There's a line there. Oh, come on. You'll be fine. Go ahead and do it. Presumption passed on from the devil to mom and dad to their kids. And behind every sin that we commit really is a little bit of presumption that we're going to get away with it this time, that God's not looking, and that we're the exception to the rule. And so, now the New Testament Greek word for presumption is taste in the Greek. And really, it's interesting, the word means daring, to push the envelope, to provoke him, to kind of say, I know what you require. I know the truth, but I am going to do this anyway. I'm going to live dangerously and see, you know, we say, you know, in spite of the warnings. You know, God is not mocked. Uh, a man will reap what he sows. If he sows to his sinful nature, from that nature he will reap destruction. And what is... Why does... Um, Paul say God is not mocked there. It means nobody will ever be able to sow to their sinful nature, that is to do something sinful and not reap the consequences. You will never be able to say, see, I did X, Y, and Z and got away with it because God will not be mocked that way. Because every time you sow to the sinful nature, there will come to you A negative consequence. That's just the spiritual (laughs) laws the way it is. And so really, Psalm 94 says it really well. The Lord, uh, they say in their hearts, the Lord doesn't see. God does not understand what's going on. And again, in Psalm 10, he boasts of the cravings of his heart. He blesses the greedy and reviles the Lord. In his pride, the wicked does not seek him. In all his thoughts, there is no room for God. Bingo. James chapter 4, verses 13 through 17. What's the problem? There's no room for God in all of the planning, and all of the dreaming, and all of the scheming, and all of the accomplishments, and all of the vision casting. It's all about him and her. And not anything to do with God. And so, you know, these worldly-minded believers, now we have a picture of how they were conducting their lives. And the businessmen and businesswomen were conducting business. So, first I want you to notice that it's a subtle sin. all right. And on the surface read, you may be wondering, James, what is the big deal? Listen to what he says. Now listen... You who say today or tomorrow will go to this city or to that city, spend a year there, carry on business and make money. Okay, what's wrong with that? (laughs) James, really, honestly, that's a sin? Are you kidding me? I I mean, listen to it. Here's what he says. Listen to what you're saying. You're saying today or tomorrow you're going to go to that or this city, spend a year there and carry business on and make money. I say that all the time, James. What, what is your problem? Why is that so evil? He calls it evil. Well, I'm glad you're asking these questions because I'm here to answer them <laughs> for you. It's a subtle sin. James is not dissing planning or uh, calling businessmen godless. Um, number one, nothing is wrong with planning. The Proverbs speak of the wisdom of good, sound, careful, effective planning. Uh, Jesus praises the man who thinks before he's going to construct a tower. And he says it's a really good idea to sit down and do some math and figure out how this thing is going to go. Jesus praises that. He also praises the king who says before you go into a battle, you, you better do some strategizing. And thinking ahead and planning. And so there's not a problem with planning. So that the guy who is planning ahead, that's not the problem. In our personal lives, we should plan. Proverbs 24, verse 27. Finish your outdoor work. Get your fields ready. After that, build your house. I mean, there's order. There's structure to life And a wise person will plan and have foresight and think ahead. These are commended in the Bible. When you look at the missionary journeys that began the Christian church all over the world, from Acts chapter 13 to to chapters 21, there are three of Paul's missionary journeys, and there were extensive plans made. So there's no problem with planning. Number two... There's no problem with a desire to make money because the Bible encourages that. Now, to the lazy loafers who said, look, the Lord is coming soon. We don't need to work very hard. He told Timothy, if anyone does not provide for his relatives, especially for his immediate family, he has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. I ran into somebody who was going to our church years ago, right when we first started. And they were at a coffee shop. And he said, Pastor, I'm having some problems here. He had his Bible in front of him. It was like a Monday morning. And he said, I'm having some problems at home. My wife is really upset with me. We're living with her parents. I'm out of work. I've been out of work for a long time. And she thinks just because I come down here and spend the morning that uh, reading my Bible and praying, she doesn't understand that my first priority is spiritual. And so I said, oh, I see the Bible there. So I flipped to First Timothy, and I put the Bible facing him, and I pointed to the verse, and I said, could you read that verse that I just read to you? And he read it silently, and I said, no, please read it out loud, <laughs> Your number one priority, sir, is not to go down and have coffee and read your Bible when you're out of work and your wife and kids need some, some you, you need to work. You need to be like the businessman in some way that says, hey, we're going to go over here, spend a year and make some money. So there's no problem in earning money and neither is there a problem when you acquire wealth doing it. The Bible heroes, many of them were rich. Abraham was wealthy in livestock and silver and gold. Job was rich. David was rich. King Solomon was wealthy. Proverbs 10.22 says, The blessing of the Lord brings wealth, and he rests upon diligent hands and brings riches as well. Proverbs 10.4. So nothing wrong with planning. Nothing wrong with wanting to go to a city and make some money. Nothing wrong with getting rich doing it. You know, really. So, what is the problem? Well, it's not what is in the text that is the problem. It's what is missing from the text that is problematic and is the mother of all trouble. Where is God in it all? Where is God in it all? It might help you if I kind of modernize and paraphrase and kind of play on the attitude James is talking about. Now listen to me read it, and now you're going to know what he's talking about. Now wait just a minute here. Slow down and listen to yourselves, you who so arrogantly are charting your own happy course, saying, maybe I'll leave today, maybe I'll leave tomorrow whenever I feel like it. And I think I'll go to L.A. or San Diego or wherever I feel like going or, and, and, and do a little business and make me some money because after all, <laughs> that's what it's all about. Ah, oh, now we know what the problem is. Living as if God were dead. Practical atheism. Christians can practice that. And what's so scary to me is, I get it that evil people do that. That people don't take God into consideration. The fool has said in his heart, there is no God. I get that part. But he's talking to the brothers. He's saying whether you're doing it willfully or no. He's saying you're living as a practical atheist. You know that Nietzsche, that German philosopher, Friedrich Nietzsche. He said that, you know, God is dead. But listen to what he said about that. He didn't just say, hey, God is dead. He said, we've killed God. We've written God out. Therefore, let me read his own writing. God is dead. God remains dead. And we have killed him. How shall we comfort ourselves, the murderers of all murderers? What was holiest and mightiest of all that the world has yet owned has bled to death under our knives. Who will wipe this blood off of us? And why? So that we can do our own thing. Because we can't do our own thing if we have to submit to a God who has moral inclinations and moral requirements. And God's ways are so contrary to what my sinful self wants. Glory to God and character development and patience and denying self and picking up cross and following you. What about me, man? What about me? And so we write off God and do our own thing to our own Demise. So really, it's arrogant self-sufficiency and practical atheism. That's what we're talking about. Final quote in this point, Kent Hughes, my favorite uh, commentator on the book of James, said this. So pervasive is our culture, arrogant and independent of God, that even many, or should I say most, Christians attend church, marry, choose their vocations, have kids, buy and sell homes, expand their portfolios, and numbly ride the currents of culture without substantial reference to the will of God. Certainly, more Christians never seriously pray about God's will regarding their vocation, family direction, or entertainment than actually do seek God's will. They change Augustine's love of love, God and do as you please to do as you please, but profess to love God. So that's what the sin of presumption is that arrogant. My kingdom come, my will be done now. Why it's so foolish a few points James wants to bring out to us to remind these crazy Christians their desperate need for God so that they'll stop making their own plans and living their own lives. And so, so right away he says, number one, you need God in every area of your life because you can't know the future. The future is a complete mystery to you. The next five minutes, you haven't a clue. You really don't know. You think that it will go the way the last five minutes has gone, but you can't be sure and nobody knows. And so the paraphrase here is why you don't even know what will happen this afternoon or what tomorrow will bring, let alone a year from now. Honestly, Proverbs 27.1 says, Do not boast about tomorrow, for you don't know what a day may bring forth. That just means, you know, really, things, uh, my man proposes, God disposes, meaning things don't always work out the way they were planned, you know. I have a friend who had a modest home here years ago when the bubble was taut, and his house was worth, so they said, modest little thing, $650,000, it was appraised for he felt the prompting to sell, and he said to me, "But I got a little greedy, and I thought if it's at six fifty, it's going to go to seven fifty, and if it's at seven fifty, it's going to go to eight 50 and, and his eyes got really big, and then pop. And now you know how much it's worth: fourteen dollars and twenty-nine cents. <laughs> no, no, it's worth a little bit more than that. But gone, gone was the opportunity. Gone. And and so housing markets rise and fall Dot-com companies Subprime mortgages and lenders The Soviet Union Beachfront property in Thailand (laughs) The Berlin Wall They all had their place One day And then the next Gone He says, you don't know You haven't a clue Things rise and they fall. Things change. It was Thursday, March 11th of this year, the Japanese businessmen were saying, Ah, today, tomorrow, we're going to go to Tokyo or Kanazawa, and we're going to do business there for about a year, and then we're going to make some money. And then the next day, Japan was moved eight feet To the east, the earth was shifted on its axis and the day was shortened by a hiccup. Not a belch, but a little hiccup caused that. I don't want to see what a belch or a seizure would cause. And then nuclear fallout there, threatening the life and well-being of the world. Entire villages ceased to exist. One day, everything's fine. Oh, we're going to do this. We're going to do that. We're going to go here. We're going to make this money. The next day, poof, gone. Doesn't exist. An entire city, gone. There's nothing standing. And it would be something if I just had one example. Folks, I've got a list this long. He's saying, you have No control. How can you run your life with God when there are so many unseen, unknowable variables? Not only in the world around you, but in your personal life. Your body, your health, your spouse. Couples come to me and say, Christian couples, the husband or the wife suddenly wakes up one day and says, you know what? I don't know if I really love you or not. I mean... You just don't know anything about anything. Anything could happen, good and bad. You don't know if tomorrow morning you're going to get a phone call and it's going to be terrible. Or tomorrow morning you're going to need an email and it's going to make you dance with joy. You don't know if tomorrow is going to bring financial disaster or a financial windfall. You have no idea. Therefore, you need to trust and hook up with the person, the one who knows all of that, and says, if you do hook up with me and trust, it doesn't matter what's going to happen tomorrow. It will be working for your good and for my causes. Surely, you don't want to uh, not bend your knee when life is like that. So you need God because you can't know nor control the future. And the second thing he, he says is the fragility of life, the brevity of life, how, how vulnerable we are. And, and, and in fact, we are more vulnerable than we care to admit. James says in your text, what is your life? And then he gives you the answer. He's saying, excuse me, but where is all this chutzpah and this self-confidence coming from? You are one heartbeat away from eternity. That's all. Now, speaking of recovering from cancer, uh, my doctor wanted to make sure that I had no heart damage or lung damage from all the radiation and the chemotherapy and the bone marrow transplant. And so I just had an echocardiogram and it's a sonogram of the heart and they measure everything. But you can see your heart beating and I'm laying on the table and he's Checking around in my heart, it was so eerie to see and hear that you hear the gurgling of the blood being, and I'm just thinking that's too much work to require of a heart, you know. And I'm thinking, just one misfire—that everything right now, your heart is doing its job, and you don't like thinking about it. That just one little spark. Goes wrong. One muscle, one little pump, just has to go, and done, gone, vaporized. Uh, It, it really—it's no fun thinking like that. And then on a day, of course, when I'm having another birthday, it kind of makes sense to me the timing of all of this. What is he saying? One bad X-ray, one crazy driver, one bad investment, and whoosh. He says, do you realize that? What is your life? You're speeding around in these portable living rooms on the freeways. (laughs) yeah, And you don't stop to get out of the car and bend down and kiss the earth and praise God that you made it alive. I mean, it's crazy out there. I, mean, I can't even do a sermon without cutting myself on a piece of paper. We are so fragile, and I mean, anything could go wrong. And it's just amazing he's saying, don't you get it? It doesn't matter if you are young and rich and beautiful as the Princess of Wales Diana was. It doesn't matter if you're the most famous face on the planet selling as many records as Michael Jackson." It does not matter if you are heir to the Kennedy Camelot dynasty as JFK, handsome, young, dashing, rich was. All three were saying, today or tomorrow, I'll go here or there and do this or that. But God said, no, you're not. This day, this moment, you have an appointment with me. Hello, come, welcome. Let's talk about the life that I gave you. I loaned it to you. You didn't birth yourself. You didn't will yourself into existence. You didn't keep yourself alive. You didn't keep the heart pumping. You didn't fill your lungs with air. I gave you life, I created you for a purpose, I breathed the breath of life into you, and now I require an accounting. How did you spend the investment I made called you? And like the rich man in Luke chapter 12, you better have something better to say than, you know, I needed another barn for all of my stuff. Jesus said, be rich toward God. Be rich toward God. So he says, listen, folks, you're a mist, you're a vapor. You you know, a puff of smoke in the Greek is what it says there. In light of eternity, human life is just inhale, exhale, gone. That's what he's saying. Psalm 39 and verse 6. Man is a mere phantom as he goes to and fro. He bustles about, but only in vain. He heaps up wealth, not knowing who will get it. We were at Hume Lake, as many of you know, and Hume Lake is just beautiful. And, and in the morning, you go down and you have your coffee, and there's this mist on the lake. It is gorgeous, and it's always there in the morning. It just rises up. The second the sun rises, just a few, <laughs> few more inches in the sky, gone. Over and over and over again in the Bible, he's pressing that to us, Life is short. Death is sure. Sin, the cause. Christ, the cure. Live well. It's so short, you don't know the future. You need the Lord. You're so vulnerable. But not when you hook up with God, the eternal. When you're born of imperishable seed, and walk with the changeless one, he can breathe on that mist and make it an eternal spirit, being born again and walking with him. You know, honestly, anybody who knows the truth of this are folks who have uh, had a close brush with death. And uh, I have. Just feeling, I felt, I was on my deathbed a couple times, 63 days at UCSF, in the hospital. I felt my life ebbing away. I could feel where it was going. I was drifting away. And it makes living life so much more valuable when you recognize how vulnerable I am And how blessed I am to be given another day. Let's make this a a day well lived. And unfortunately, when you don't go through those things, you just take it for granted as I did before that experience, you know to some degree or another. And one day, you know how it all started? It started in my 30s, but it didn't culminate till my 40s. But the very first day was an x-ray that I got for a school district. I was 37 years old in perfect health. I was running the uh, laps around San Francisco, seven miles. And then I got uh, a call from a radiologist. The school district said, you got to be checked for TB. So I went in and stood there and had my x-ray and he called me and he said, well, so what's wrong with you? And I said, nothing's wrong with me, it's for the school district. And he said, well, what's the mass at the center of your chest? And I said, that would be called a heart. (laughs) (laughs) And he said, this is no laughing matter, you have a mass the size of an apple. You need a CAT scan. I said, no, this is all a mistake. I didn't even want an x-ray. I'm not sick. I'm telling you that. He goes, Mr. Ryman, get a CAT scan. Oh, my kids, four, six, and eight, are running around after a bath and Barb's out shopping. And she comes back in. Our whole life has changed one phone call. I have to sit her down and say, uh, I've got a mass the size of an apple right next to my heart. What is your life? Live well. And to live well is to live in faith with the living God. Last point, he says, there's a better way, a godly alternative, how believers must live. And so we've seen the sobering look, the brevity of life, and how vulnerable we are. Now James suggests a new course to live in the will of God, to find our pleasure, to be smack dab in the middle of what. God wants for me his purpose his his providence you know so here's a paraphrase all right instead of all of this boasting shouldn't you be laying out your plans before the living God acknowledging that any plans of yours are contingent on what God wants doing your own thing and expecting to fare well without God's blessing is the highest form of arrogance and it's just plain evil So then, now that you know this, and I've pointed it out to you, the right way to live, you are morally obligated to put it into practice. Just a paraphrase of the ideas there. Hudson Taylor had an interesting thing to say. A British missionary of the 1800s, just a profound man of God. I mentioned him in a Wednesday night message recently. Uh, He uh, founded China Inland Mission at his death. He had uh, 800 missionaries under him, 205 mission statements, uh, mission stations. I got statements on my brain. And, and uh, 125,000 Christians associated with that movement. And here's what he said. There are three ways to go about our Christian lives. One is to make the best plans we can and carry them out the, to the best of our ability. Two, we can carefully plan out what we want to do and then seek to accomplish those plans and ask God to bless them. Or three, we can begin with God, ask his plan, and then offer ourselves to him to carry out His purposes. So what is the right way to live for Christians? Well, number one, to bow before divine sovereignty. To say, really, if it's the Lord's will, we will live and do this and that. Now, number one, it's more than a verbal tag at the end of sentences. Is it not? It it is a mindset or a posture of the heart. Now, to say Lord willing, after I say, you know, we may go to Mexico for a missions trip, Lord willing, is proper and good. But it's not really the point. The point is a right mental attitude, a posture of living, a flexibility that has bowed before God. Uh, Kent Hughes again, he said, the right mindset Dependence on God is more important than saying the right words. In Acts, during all of those missionary endeavors, Paul tells the Ephesians, um, "I will be back to visit, Lord willing." And then he uses that term, "Oh, First Corinthians 4:19, Romans chapter one verse 10, 1 Corinthians 16:7. So Paul the Apostle used it, and a lot of times he did not. You don't find it a lot in the book of Acts, but they lived it. They lived it out. So it's not that we always have to make sure you say, you know, Lord willing. In fact, hundreds of years ago, or not so many hundreds, the Puritans and the Methodists, after saying things, they would say DV for the Latin phrase Deo Volente, which means Lord willing. In fact, they would sign their letters DV for the Lord willing willing but more than that to acknowledge God's sovereignty that's why they were doing it when I say that God is sovereign we're saying God is the source of life nothing exists that he didn't create he opens his hand and satisfies the longing of every living thing he gives and takes away he does as he pleases and there's no one like him God controls everything nothing happens without his permission He knows all things. He's present everywhere at once. He's all-powerful. He opens doors that no one can shut, and he shuts doors that no one can open. Here's what Paul says in Colossians chapter 1. For by him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, All things were created by him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And now James is going to say, and you're going to tell me that you're going to do your own thing? Without any substantial reference to the will of God? It's impossible. You cannot to ignore, to neglect, to rebel against him by taking the reins Is the height of arrogance and just a grave evil. And so he says, and and if you know the right thing and fail to do it, you're sinning. So what does that mean? At the last tagline he's saying, they could say, yeah, 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 we we know that. And he's saying, okay, you just heard it again. Are you going to do something about it? Because they were thinking, look, I'm not really doing anything. I'm saying today or tomorrow, I'm going to go over here and do this or do that. Make a little money. That's not really wrong. So you can't really convict me of anything. And James says, oh, yes, we can. Sins of omission are just as bad as sins of commission. So that's what that tagline means. He says, therefore, you going around saying, what? I'm not doing anything. I'm just going over here and making a little money. He's going, no, 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 no. I've already explained this to you. And failure to change is a sin. And you're going to watch out for that. So let's close with just real, a few quick thoughts for the Christian who really actively and genuinely uh, walks with the Lord. And as most people in this church do, what is James wanting this passage to say to us? Well, First of all, it's not to beef up your Lord Willings at the end of sentences. All right? So, I mean, I, you know, all the time I'm studying this, my temptations, you know, to say, oh, we're going to Burger King, Lord Willing. Uh, you know, come on. I'm going to say, moms, you don't need to say, well, we're going to have this for dinner, Lord Willing. Uh, honestly, you really don't have to say, say, dad, on the way home from church, we are going to stop and get gas, Lord Willing. You know? You get it? Please don't make yourself crazy because that's not what he's after. He's after a heart that longs to do the right thing in the moment, to find what God is saying as it's unfolding before your eyes and get in it and under it and ride that wave in obedience and trust. That's what he's saying. And whether you say the words or not, you live them by being bowed You know, instead of just going through and just saying, well, you know, a door opened. Do you know how many doors open that aren't from him? Doors open. I've heard this over and over again. Well, the God opened the door. I could send out 10 resumes. There are little churches all over the world that need pastors. I could get a response. And if I didn't tell them I wasn't very serious about it, I could go on interviews. And you know what? I could find another job. And then I could say, well, God opened this door. My friends, a little more prayer and thought and some caution. Slow down. Number one, that's what he's asking. Slow down. Pray more. Not these kind of, in Jesus' name, amen. But real prayer, taking some time, especially with the important things, to lay it before, to take your time, to spend some time reading the scriptures, thinking about what God really wants. Not that God will bless your plan, but that he bless you with his plan. That's my prayer. You know, you don't have to read much of the Old Testament to figure out when Israel sought the Lord... And got a word from him and obeyed, they were blessed. And when they ignored him and went forward in their own thinking and logic, they were always in trouble. I've got enough trouble without bringing it on myself. Amen? Amen. All right. Number two, consider what God wants more than what you want. How does this strengthen my faith? How does this advance God's kingdom? How does this strengthen the church? How does this glorify Jesus? How does this reach the lost? How does this develop character? How does this honor biblical principles? And then we say, what about me? You will find yourself when you lose yourself for his sake. Jesus' words. Don't you be coming up without God and saying, I found myself, finally. I find myself By getting rid of God, you, Jesus said, you've lost yourself because I created you. And to disconnect from the person who created you for a a specific reason, you lose. Now, when you say, I'm not going to do something sinful because I want to find the Lord. And you lose your, your selfish ambition for him. He says, you find yourself. And then when you're right with God, he'll give you desires. There's nothing wrong with dreaming and and having ambitions as God has given them, as they align themselves with the scriptures and Christian principles. And so, you know, I just say, learn to lead finally. Learn to let him lead you. When your heart is prompted, not your sinful nature calling, but when your higher self, the born again you, prompted follow that learn from the chastisements stay in his peace come under godly counsel these are all the different ways that we we have to learn moment by moment how to live in the will of God and I don't think it's as complicated as we make it like there's just one little path that I gotta find I think that God is working with our free will and his sovereign hand, and he's making the best out of all the choices that we make for us. And two more ideas. One is to say, learn to say yes a lot to him, even when it's, a best, it's against some of your inclinations. Ask Jonah about that. You know, he didn't <laughs> really want to do what God wanted him to do. And he paid a dear price for that. And lastly, stay humble. When Napoleon Bonaparte kind of told his friends his inv- he had plans to invade Russia, Russia, his, this man said, uh, don't do it, and he tried to dissuade him by warning, man proposes, but God disposes. Napoleon said, I dispose as well as I propose. And so that was the end of him right there. Uh, We all have to learn the hard way sometimes To go out in front of God Stay humble Asking Listening And then doing God's will And you know for me The simple things where he says You know what They say what do we gotta do to please God John chapter 6 And Jesus says Trust me Trust me In every situation And trusting God What's the loving thing to do here? What's the thing that would put a smile on Jesus' face? I mean, if we just walk humbly, love mercy, what is it? Love justice, walk humbly. No. Okay, who's got it? Do justly, love mercy, and walk humbly with our God. Amen? Got it. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, it is simple when we think about it that way. Lord, to do the right thing, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with you, we can do this with the help of the Holy Spirit you sent. For that very reason, because apart from you, we can do nothing. So thank you, God, that you've never asked us to do something that your Spirit won't help us to accomplish. So help us, Lord to love your will, to do it with glad hearts. In Jesus' name, amen. You've been listening to The Rock's podcast. Our regular services are held on Sunday mornings at 8.30 and 10.30 a.m. in Santa Rosa, California. If you'd like to learn more, please visit our website at cctherock.org.